0: to Cornell's University's Pro Dairy Podcast. In this series, we're going to be talking about COVID-19 and how dairy farmers and the industry in general have adapted to it. I'm Kathy Barrett, and I'm with Cornell's Pro Dairy Program.
1: And I'm Rob Lynch, also part of Cornell's ProDairy Program.
0: Okay folks, for this episode of our podcast series, we have Dr. Andrew Novakovic and Dr. Chris Wolf with us, both Cornell professors who focus in the area of milk marketing and who have agreed today to come and give us kind of a background on what we're facing in the milk market today. So Andy, if you could kind of just introduce yourself a bit, that would be great.
2: Yeah, sure. I've been uh, on the faculty at Cornell since uh, 1978. Uh I recently retired, although I'm still keeping pretty active, especially as all these events unfold. And my primary interest uh, has been and continues to be on what happens to milk after it leaves the farm.
0: And Chris?
1: Uh, yeah, so I'm a professor in Dyson at Cornell. Uh, for, I've been there since uh, last summer. Before that, I spent about 20 years on the faculty at Michigan State. Um, and I, I have always kind of worked with the dairy industry from the farm level to the consumer, but a lot at the farm level historically.
0: So, you know, there's a lot of concern out in the field right now about farmers being asked to dump milk and just understanding the the connection between having, being asked to dump milk and then shelves not being full, uh, you know, in the dairy counter. So I was wondering if you guys would be able to give us an understanding of why we're in this kind of a situation and what's driving it.
2: Sure. Of course, uh, we're just all kind of beginning to learn uh, what's going on and what are some of the real numbers versus the stories. But I, I guess I would begin by saying we've had experience with uh, higher than normal levels of uh, dumping since uh, 2014, uh, pretty almost the last five years. And the just to give a little perspective for. Uh, federal order one which of course is bigger than than new york but uh, most of new york is a part of uh, kind of the baseline for uh, milk that is not able to be sold commercially on an annual basis is 0.3 percent less than one percent and this is for yeah you know the truck goes off the road you have an ice storm the power goes off in the plant Uh, sometimes it's uh um, a, a load comes in that has one farm's milk was uh, uh, contaminated because they didn't uh, uh, follow the antibiotic protocol, uh, but just, you know, stuff happens. In, in the last five years, uh, the the dumping, the additional dumping has taken it uh, from 0.3 to 0.5, which doesn't sound uh, like uh, that big of a deal, but there have been months uh, when it's been in excess of 1% uh, of the total producer receipts for the order. And, and I think there were 12 or 14 of those months in the last five years. Uh, and, of course, the that dumping situation that we've had has been seasonal. It's been uh, primarily when fluid milk uh, outlets are reducing their volume. Uh, it's the summer months and kids aren't in school, and, and we haven't had a place <clears throat> to go with that uh, milk nearby. Uh, So it's been some months, none at all, and some months a big spike. I mention that because the situation today is entirely different. Uh, It's not about dwindling fluid milk sales and, and, you know, kind of normal or slightly more than normal production growth and not being able to find a local plant. It's about basically the entire complete shutdown of the food service sector uh, because of the the safer at home uh, uh, social uh, distancing uh, effects this is much larger in magnitude and it, it's not a seasonal issue it's a pretty much uh, all the time issue it's also the case that uh, new york is uh, probably in a little bit better shape than some other parts of the country because we have such a diverse customer base unlike uh, states that are big in the commodity business, where a lot of that stuff is going to food service, uh, we're much more oriented towards retail sales. And although fluid milk is declining, it's still a, a very significant part of our of our customer profile. Uh, the other couple of factors, though, uh, that are probably explaining uh, uh, more of our situation is related to workers, both uh, workers and plants. But probably even more importantly, uh, drivers. Uh, and this isn't necessarily about people who are sick, but people who are afraid of getting sick. And, and with the infection rate in New York, in New York City being what it is, it's not surprising that it's hard to find people that are eager to volunteer and go drive a truck uh, into uh, New York City and make a bunch of stops, putting a, you know, a few crates of milk here and a few crates of milk there. And so the worker issue uh, is contributing to the problem. And is probably uh, more than anything else uh, an explanation for the stockouts that we're seeing uh, in New York. Uh, hoarding, uh, even for something like milk, was also uh, an issue early on. And uh, in the absence of any kind of worker issue, we can get past that one with without any great difficulty. That's just like refilling up the pipeline. And in most stores around the country, that's exactly what's happening. And it's just not. A, a long-term issue, but but when you've got uh, drivers in particular, but workers in general who don't want to report for work to avoid getting sick, then then that adds a, a little different complication.
0: Chris, did you have anything you wanted to add to that?
2: Of course, Andy did a good job.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, uh, if you th- if you think about the two types of outlets, the food service, um, kind of the away-from-home meals or takeout meals, that would be about twenty-five percent of the meals. Nationally, but about fifty percent of the expenditures, and so at home meals traditionally has been seventy-five percent of the meals, and the and the, the other fifty percent of the expenditures, it has behooved the supply chains in the past to be really efficient in the way that they deal with this, and so you know um, to be lean and efficient and get the product there right when it's delivered, and try to hone in the amount of product that's needed in each case, and not carry excess inventory, and not necessarily a whole lot of extra capacity. And when we take that all those food service meals, which are not just when you go out to dinner, but also any meals that you would have eaten at work, or when you were traveling for work, Mm -hmm. or actually just traveling in general, because that has stopped. And you take all of that kind of food service aspect, and you basically take it mostly to zero, and you shift all of that consumption to the grocery stores and at home, that's a pretty big adjustment to happen. Uh, rather quickly for these supply chains. So what you're seeing with the dumping of milk is mostly to those outlets that were to serve those food service type parts of the consumption. Um, and at the same time, there's been in some areas a need to ramp up and get the milk into the grocery stores. And so that kind of shifting doesn't happen immediately in this type of supply chain. You know, I've seen a couple of things on social media myself that basically, we're wondering why you could be dumping milk at the same time when it was in tight supply in some things. And it certainly isn't because the farmers, the processors or the co-ops don't want to get the milk someplace else and not have it dumped. Nobody's dumping it because they want to. It's just a matter of uh, well, a kind of a loss in demand to some extent, but also a major shift in demand. I imagine it's just, you know, a matter of, of even just packaging of the way dairy products are delivered into the restaurant industry is different than the way it's packaged and brought into like retail settings. That just doesn't happen overnight.
2: Oh, indeed. And and as as Chris was pointing out, what we choose to eat at home is different than what we eat when we're eating outside the home. And this has been well known. It's, it's not something that we were surprised to discover, but People who drink milk, drink milk primarily in the home. Very, very few adults will order milk with a meal at a restaurant, certainly not for supper. And in fact, uh, more and more, uh, their their kids are less likely to drink milk outside the home in a restaurant setting. But on the other hand, we, uh, particularly if you think about casual dining and, and, and quick serve restaurants, processed cheese is everywhere. And uh, very few people buy processed cheese uh, for at-home consumption and, you know, put it on every sandwich that they make. And so in the case of fluid milk, sales are up. Uh, in fact, it's expected that they may be up to 10 to 15%. In the case of processed cheese, it's not gone away completely, but dramatically uh, lower. And for the fluid milk companies who perhaps have a little bit of uh, excess capacity, there's still challenges. You can only run the filler so fast. Uh, most fluid milk plants are run 24 hours a day, so it isn't like you can put on another shift. And so uh, it's doable, but it takes a little while and, and certainly uh, some planning. And, you know, if you've got a, a cheese plant in some, you know, big rural part of the state that uh, suddenly is shut down, uh, the fact that there's a fluid plant in the big city that's three, 400 miles away, 200 miles away, Uh, doesn't mean that it's all that easy to get that milk uh, from the the cheese producing area into the fluid milk producing area.
1: Also wondering if there's, uh, they must be losing some efficiency in their efforts to implement social distancing and and spreading shifts apart. And like these plants probably can't even, you know, can they even operate at their normal efficiency when they're also trying to keep their employees safe?
2: Yeah, well, certainly that's a, a challenge. It, it depends a lot on what kind of a processing plant you're in. Yeah. Fluid milk plants uh, employ a lot of labor, uh, and there's people around in close proximity. Uh, a processed cheese plant, the, 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 the companies that make the precursor to the packages that we see in the grocery store or even in food service, uh, doesn't have very many employees, and mm-hmm. uh, that becomes a little bit easier. Uh, the other thing to keep in mind is it isn't just what you're doing on the work floor. It's what you do in the, in the break room and it's what you do when you go home. And so if you have workers that, uh, you know, are kind of obeying the new rules about social distancing in a, in a plant, if they go home and pop a few beers with the guys, uh, that undermines completely what you're trying to do in the plant. Sure. So it, it's a challenge uh, uh, in ways that are difficult for the uh, plant managers to really entirely control.
0: Can we switch gears a little bit here and talk about the declining milk price? Is there something, Chris, you feel like you could share with producers about their concerns about declining milk prices?
1: This probably isn't news, um, and it's not, not good news. But, you know, as uh, we were kind of thinking about earlier, 2019 was not a bad year for the first time in five years for the, for the dairy farm industry in the United States, particularly in the Northeast. Um, and returns were back towards a normal return and and If you look at the Cornell farm business summary you 'll see that you know it was an okay year, which is uh, much better than it had been, and that there was a, a little bit of a recovery uh, in in some sense as far as the average amount of debt level going down and liquidity looking better than it had in several years and We kind of walked into two thousand and twenty with um, pretty strong fundamentals for the market in the sense that the Top exporting countries in the world were were not really expanding their production. The United States um, had kind of been growing at a much slower rate than usual. And Australia has got the issues that they've been having. And the European Union had kind of worked off those excess supplies that they had. And they weren't really growing a lot either. So if we thought if we could get past some of these kind of trade war issues, that the fundamentals pointed to a pretty strong year. And in, coming into the year, you could... Look at class three and class four milk prices, and they were in that sixteen seventy five to eighteen dollar range, kind of with eighteen towards the third quarter of this year, like we would expect, kind of a normal seasonal pattern. And unfortunately, um, I think some of these producers took some of those prices and locked them in using dairy revenue protection, the futures and options, and other things of that nature. And because today we're we're looking at um, May class three price and class four price that were between 11 and $12 a hundred weight. Um, and now may, by the way, usually is the low milk price uh, for the year on average. It's not necessarily the low price each year, but on average, that's where we end up. Still we were looking at prices that were 1675 to 1750 two months ago. So that's kind of the loss that we're looking at five, six, um, in some months, $7 a hundred weight. And in partly that's just the, um, futures market kind of uh, trying to figure out how to price this uncertainty into the market. No idea how long it's going to last. No idea kind of what the economic effect is going to be as far as long-term unemployment and income loss and things of that nature and just shifting consumption pattern that we were talking about. And so, you know, if we can get back to some sense of normalcy, if we can kind of look like we're turning the corner and stuff, I think that they're, might be uh, some strength that could come back later on in the year, but I think we're looking at the second quarter definitely, the end of the first quarter, the second quarter, and maybe into the third quarter being bad. And I think that's probably as is, is positive as we can look there. Now, if their farms are signed up for the dairy margin coverage program, at the same time that the milk price has been going south, the expected payments for the dairy margin coverage program have been going up. Now those are limited to the 5 million pounds of production, which is 50,000 hundredweight, which is roughly 4,200 hundredweight each month because it has to be evenly distributed by the program rules. So there is the possibility that there could be some pretty big payments coming from the dairy margin coverage program. And there are discussions about other things that might be done as far as government purchases and other things like that. Uh, Maybe Andy could talk about the different options that have kind of been thrown out there and talk about the possibilities here.
2: Yeah, sure, and I think one of the things I'd like to to add to the discussion uh, that ties in with these options is uh, a reminder about how farm milk prices are are put together. We probably all remember that federally regulated milk, which of course represents uh, essentially all the milk in the Northeast, Uh, is done under a classified pricing scheme uh, where class three and four prices are determined nationally, uh, the same in every part of the U S and are calculated from a a national average price for commodity uh, cheddar cheese, uh, commodity butter, commodity nonfat dry milk and commodity dry whey products. And, Class two floats above uh, class four and class one floats uh, above the average of class three and class four. Well, uh, again, the situation that's driving prices down today is the loss of sales in both class three and class four. Uh, Class two seems to be a little bit of a wash. Yogurt is up. We really haven't gotten into the ice cream season yet cream products are way down uh, a lot of cream products are are purchased in coffee shops and restaurants and so there's a pretty strong food service effect on uh, the cream side which is in class 2 and class 1 is up i've said uh, a couple of times now that you know if we actually had futures markets on class 1 or spot markets on class 1 you would expect those prices to be going up given the current situation but they're not uh, there's no such market for that uh, it is for for uh, class three and four in the commodities. And because those sectors are taking the big hit, uh, it's, dro- it's pulling down the price uh, of everything else. I mean, uh, you know, the system was not designed to anticipate uh, this kind of, uh, uh, of situation. So in my mind, uh, one of the things that uh, I think is absolutely necessary if we're gonna see any kind of price recovery is getting milk back in those uh, cheese and butter powder plants. But as long as food service is is closed, uh, that's not going to happen. And so uh, either we have to look for uh, ways that uh, is responsible from a public health standpoint to get those plants back open, or think about government programs uh, that would uh, essentially uh, create a government demand uh, for certain products, uh, which means buying cheese or paying somebody to make cheese that could be donated uh, situation. Those kinds of programs have been around for a while, uh, uh, and certainly if we 're going to be looking at uh, a whole lot more unemployed people. You, you could make a strong case that this would be a win-win to, to get milk back in those plants, get those plants up and running so they can pay farmers uh, and, and get food into the hands of people that uh, suddenly find themselves uh, w- without a job and not able to buy food on their own. Um, there's conversation about uh, ginning up those kinds of programs. Uh, there's some concerns about if we did that, would we be able to donate it all? If we donated some, would it displace regular commercial sales and kind of be one step forward, one step backwards? Would we end up with the government owning stocks that then, you know, could hang over the market for a while and, and uh, be a problem in that sense? Uh, but at the end of the day, I think... Um, as with all supply and demand situations, you either have to uh, have less supply or more demand. And, and right now, given that we've our problem is primarily because of uh, a, a crazy demand situation, I, I think uh, a compelling case can be made for ramping up in a big way uh, product donation programs. Of course, whether you're talking about dairy margin coverage or dairy R P, or something like the market facilitation payment, where where producers just got so many cents per hundredweight. That's basically called an income subsidy, where farmers just get a check from the United States Treasury, and uh, it might be triggered by this, that, or the other. It might be whatever rule, but at the end of the day, uh, you're getting your money from someplace other than the marketplace. You know that's helpful for farmers for obvious reasons, but it doesn't do anything to solve the demand problem. And one of the things that uh, I think uh, we would need to be a little concerned about is whether that just pushes prices down even lower or leaves them low even longer, uh, which certainly uh, would not be uh, a happy outcome. Lots of ideas are being tossed around. It's entirely unclear uh, what will be feasible. Uh, Some of this stuff requires new legislation uh, if it were to be used. Uh, some of it actually usDA uh, could do with the with the money they got out of the last coronavirus uh, bill that was passed, the you know couple trillion dollar bill did it did include some money for USDA to do some things. Uh, but there's gonna be uh, two challenges uh, uh, one is the the too little too late phenomenon, uh, and the other is uh, kind of There's nothing you can do that isn't going to have a side consequence that is going to be problematic. And uh, in many ways, we're making the best of a bad situation and are going to have to look at some options uh, that have complications that have, you know, uh, helps you with this. But then you got to deal with that and and kind of a least worse uh, choice uh, that uh, we're going to have to work our way through.
0: Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Chris, for joining us today and making some very complicated issues much more understandable. So we're going to finish up here now with this episode of our Cornell Pro Dairy podcast. Hope you will join us for future episodes where we will be talking to other folks in the industry about how they're handling the current situation with COVID-19. So thanks very much for joining us.